As a tradition, Anglicanism has its own unique particular tradition and way in which I encourage people, you know, read more, learn more, you know, and quite frankly, you know, live the life of being an Anglican tr Christian uh, through the prayer book by taking up the, the daily offices and be shaped by uh, this discipline, which is very much drawn from reforming uh, Benedictine spirituality through the work of Thomas Cramner. Welcome to the Classic Anglican Podcast. Join us as we explore classic Anglicanism through thoughtful and informative conversation within the bounds of the Christian faith once received. I'm your host, Canon Zachary. Today, our guest is the Venerable Andrew Brazier, who serves as Chancellor for the Jurisdiction of Armed Forces and Chaplaincy, Rector of Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Pelham, Alabama, and is employed full-time in governmental affairs and church engagement as the faith-based outreach manager for the nation's largest prison ministry. Archdeacon Andrew, welcome back to the Classic Anglican Podcast. Hey, it's so good to be back with you, Zach. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, we're excited about it, and uh, we've got a great topic to talk about today. We're going to be talking about uh, John Jewell. And, uh, you know, Archdeacon, that's not a name that many Anglicans may be familiar with, but there's a bit of a Jewell renaissance taking place. Maybe two-ish minutes or less. Who was John Jewell? Yeah, so I guess kind of the quick spill for Bishop John Jewell is he was obviously a bishop, uh, Bishop of Salisbury uh, during the Elizabethan uh, era, during her reign. And his main importance that if people know his name, they know him through the Apology of the Church of England, which was extremely popular both uh, during his time and afterwards for defending uh, the Reformation that was ongoing in the Church of England and defending the Catholicism of the Reformation in England. And so with that rundown fresh in our minds, let's dig a little bit deeper and explore what Jewell has to offer as we study classic Anglicanism. And like you said, he's probably best known for his apology of the Church of England. Uh, this book, you know, I it there's a new edition of it from Davenant Press that's really well done. I encourage everybody that is interested in Anglicanism and and the classic approach to Anglicanism to check it out. But it can come across as a bit polemical by today's standards. How should the modern reader absorb his work and why is it still important? Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say a couple of, of reasons there is that it, when you read it, you're coming into the midst of an era of great debate. And Jewell was known for being uh, very skilled in his way of arguing, very skilled in, in rhetoric, and was also someone who was coming at a time in which people were writing back and forth uh, from the Roman Catholic Church to the various churches of the Reformation, uh, attacking the doctrines that were important during that era and attacking the controversies, namely uh, salvation and the root of salvation, but also including uh, ecclesiology, also including you know, exactly what does a church uh, look like? What makes a church a church? Is it being in communion with the Bishop of Rome? Or is there a history of Catholic churches being independent like those of the Christian East? So I'd also add in there that when it comes to 
you know, Bishop Jewell and the way you read him today, when you come across, you know, what he's writing about the Roman Catholic Church, you've got to remember that it's also a different time, a different era, and the Roman Catholic Church uh, was much different in the late Middle Ages than even modern uh, versions of the Roman Catholic Church that you encounter today. So you have to view it with a certain eye that when he goes out and, and says that the Pope, you know, is a precursor to Antichrist, He's arguing because he's trying to defend the Catholic faith and very much is concerned about what is being taught uh, during that time and that place in the mid to late 1500s. And he does go into a good deal of detail about the fact that the Pope at the time was really the antithesis of Catholicity. And he outlines the behavior of that. Now, you've got to wade through some of the polemical language, but that's that's a large portion of of the text there. That's a really good brief overview. Uh, but, you know, we can learn a lot about this work by looking at its its latter defense as well. So tell us about how and why this book in particular was defended by others. Certainly. And so this book, The Apology of the Church of England, really, you know, gained a lot of, of credence uh, for two reasons. Uh, one of the first reasons is the fact that when it comes to uh, the Apology of the Church of England in 1609, which just to kind of give the listener some clarity here, uh, Bishop Jewell dies in 1571. So this is well after his passing and died at a young age of 49. In 1609, the Archbishop is Archbishop Bancroft, and he orders the Apology of the Church of England to be placed throughout the churches in England. It's really the definitive apology of that time period showing why the Church of England is still Catholic through its Reformation. As a matter of fact, the apology continues to be so popular. If you know your English history, you know that there is an English civil war in which the king is no more. The king is executed, King Charles, and there is a period in which uh, England is governed um, in a sort of quasi-Republican, also despotic manner. After the return of uh, the monarchy to England, which is known as the Restoration, there are a certain set of articles called the Visitation Articles, which are published, and uh, Bishop Cousin of Durham required that each parish in these Visitation Articles have a copy of not only the books of homilies, but also the works of Bishop Jewell in defense of the Church of England. So you see that this apology is very much something that shows the identity, shows the reasoning, and shows the justification for the Church of England's separation uh, for Rome for essentially over a hundred years. And you're talking about some very tumultuous times that the Church of England went through. Um, the Church of England continues to go through some difficult times, and mm-hmm. Anglicanism, the worldwide Anglican communion, is going through some difficult times. Um, by and large, right now, because of uh, heterodoxy within uh, what what is colloquially known as the developed world, mm-hmm. and the developing world is uh, sponsoring and coming alongside those of us in the quote-unquote developed world who are holding on to orthodoxy. So we have a lot to learn from the efforts of Archbishop Bancroft and, and Bishop Cozen and their efforts to push this material. Uh, I will point out that uh, before we move on to some other things, the introduction to the Davenant Press edition of this particular book is very, very good. Uh, it's probably worth owning just for the introduction and some of the explanatory things, 
But then, um, you know, what I would recommend that as you're reading the Apology for the Church of England by Jewell is exactly what the archdeacon just told us. Keep in mind the context. Keep in mind what's going on in Roman Catholicism then, as well as what's going on in Protestantism, and put those lenses on because we're having different dialogues today with Rome. And we find in Orthodox Anglicanism, uh, with our classic view of Anglicanism, and much of the uh, conservative movement within the Roman Catholic Church of sort of the Pope John Paul II post-Vatican II Roman Catholics that are holding on to that conservative view of that rather than the popular media view of, of, of Vatican II, that uh, we have a lot in common. If not just socially, but also ecclesiology-wise, there are still vast theological differences, but but okay. we have much more in common now than we did when, when we're reading Jewel. So uh, it's not something that necessarily you want to throw at your best Roman Catholic friend and and try to endear them to Anglicanism <laughs> with it, because it's making an argument that we don't necessarily have in the same way. So as we're transitioning on, Bishop Jewell wrote other important works, and in fact, uh, you're republishing two treatises of his that we're anxiously awaiting. One is the Holy Scriptures, and the other is the sacraments. What can you tell our listeners about how Bishop Jewell approaches these subjects and how his works play into Anglicanism today? Certainly. And so his treatise on uh, Holy Scripture actually predates the Apology of the Church of England. Uh, it comes out, or excuse me, it postdates the Apology of the Church of England. It comes out in 1570. The Apology comes out in 1561, I believe, or 1562. The Apology came out while the Council of Trent was ongoing. And so after the Council of Trent uh, wraps up in the early 1560s, he publishes, or he has published, a short treatise on Holy Scriptures, which is really uh, sermons that he delivered uh, throughout 1570 and were collected together. Additionally, he does a separate treatise on the sacraments, and uh, that is published in uh, 1583. And together they are typically published, um, so that way you have the Holy Scriptures and then you have the sacraments and his reflections on both, that uh, reformational emphasis and recovery of word and sacrament ministry. And what you really get to see and hear is through the eyes of Bishop Jewell, is, you know, what is the root of our doctrine, our teaching, our faith? And he goes immediately into Holy Scriptures. And he has an excellent part within his treatise on the Holy Scriptures about the role of the Church Fathers. And he's not somebody who ignores the Church Fathers. Far from it. If you've read the Apology, you see that he quotes extensively the Church Fathers as do our two books of homilies. And in his treatise on Holy Scriptures, he has this I want to quote about the fathers. I think it's, it's very relevant. He says about the church fathers, quote, They be interpreters of the word of God. They were learned men and learned fathers, the instruments of the mercy of God and vessels full of grace. We despise them not. We read them. We reverence them and give thanks unto God for them. And so he really upholds the fact that when it comes to the church fathers, we can learn, you know, how have they seen the Holy Scriptures? How has the church Catholic always read and interpreted? But he also acknowledges they were but men, 
and at times they were wrong. And that's why we run the thread of Catholic thought and tradition. And that's why in the view of uh, himself and those fellow English reformers, they were not inventing a new faith, but they were simply you know, recovering uh, the faith which has once been delivered to all the saints. And that's a very different thing than um, the restoration movement that people may be familiar with. Recovering the faith is is not like trying to make something out of whole cloth from Scripture alone, but okay. we are we are looking to the ancient church to be able to understand how uh, Scriptures came to be and how the church responsibly lived that out, and then recovering that faith, as you said, once delivered. One of the things that was once delivered to the saints uh, are the sacraments, and we see them in Scripture. We also experience them in the daily life of the church and have for centuries. What is Jules' view of the sacraments, and is it the same as what we have in the ACNA? Are we inheritors of his view? Do we have something more to learn from him? Certainly, and that's a great question. On his treatise of the sacraments, which is longer than that on, on Holy Scripture, because he addresses not only uh, the two sacraments given to us by Christ, but addresses the question of the other five um, sacraments, also commonly referred to today as sacramentals. Uh, some like to emphasize the sacramental nature of these other uh, five institutions. But Jewel does an excellent job of cutting to the chase and really following the Augustinian line of thought. And quite frankly, quoting Augustine, which we also have quoted in our short catechism. Sadly, not in the 1979 or 2019 prayer book, but still regularly available and bound to the 1662 um, prayer book and the American 1928 prayer book which references the fact that a sacrament had to be ordained by Christ, and a sacrament is an outward visible sign of an inward spiritual grace. And so what he does is he articulates that the two sacraments given over to the church are that of baptism and Holy Communion, also known as the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. But he also takes great time and great lengths to walk through the other five uh, so-called sacramentals, of the faith and notes that we don't get rid of them, we being the Church of England and later the greater Anglican communion that inherits the doctrine um, that is taken from the Catholic faith that Jewell so passionately defended. Uh, for example, I'll quote real briefly when he talks about the other sacramentals, he says, quote, what then do we refuse confirmation, penance, orders, and matrimony? Is there no use of these among us? Do we not allow them? Yea, for we do confirm and teach repentance and minister holy orders and account matrimony and so use it as an honorable state of life. We visit the sick among us and anoint them with the precious oil and mercy of God. But we call not these sacraments because they have not like institution. And then he continues on from there to talk about how these institutions are to be upheld, but they had sadly been abused or elevated to too great of a height during the latter Middle Ages in the Roman Catholic Church. So it's very important because you asked a good question about what can we learn about it as Orthodox Anglicans, uh, those throughout um, you know, global Anglicanism, those in the global South, those in ACNA. And what I would posit is that if we look to our fundamental declaration, which is part of our Constitution and Canons, which is attached to the 2019 ACNA Book of Common Prayer, it roots us in the doctrine and in the teachings of the 39 articles in the Book of Common Prayer. And when we look to those teachings, we see 
that throughout the history of Anglicanism that we have upheld the Catholic faith, upheld the two sacraments, that we have not gotten rid of the other so-called five sacraments, but have used them and used them properly by going to the fathers and by reforming the abuses that had developed over the latter Middle Ages. And so just to review, because we we have folks of varying uh, stripes that are listening to our podcast now. We have uh, postulants who are coming into ministry within the Anglican tradition. We have uh, folks that are inquirers. We have folks that are on an ordination track. For the sake of our listeners as we're talking about this, let's rewind a little bit. And for the dominical sacraments, could you give us a classic Anglican view of baptism and the Lord's Supper? Certainly. And I would say that for everyone, no matter if you're preparing for you know, ordination, uh, if you're already ordained, and more importantly, if you're a member of the laity— I think everyone should go back to our classic uh, Anglican Catechism, uh, which was attached traditionally to the prayer book, and so eloquently walks through what are the sacraments, what is a sacrament, which we briefly defined a moment ago, and then what is and what is happening in both baptism and the Lord's Supper. And Jewel, when you read through the treatise on holy sacraments, he really takes up both baptism and both the Lord's Supper, and really emphasizes the reality of what is happening, along with the spiritual significance of what is going on. Like the classic catechism says, there's two parts of a sacrament. There's that outward, visible sign that you can hold, touch, that you can feel, that is created, because our God is the creator. And then that inward spiritual grace, which nourishes us, which brings us near to him, though we be sinners, now we're brought in reconciliation and covenant to him. And so for baptism, that outward visible sign is the water, where we're baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost as we were commanded to continue as we go out into all the world, making disciples of all nations. But what is that inward spiritual grace? It's a death unto sin. It's a new birth unto righteousness. Because since we're born by nature in sin and we're the children of wrath, we're now hereby made the children of grace. And as Jewel will say in his uh, second treatise, he'll say that the blood of Christ is what is poured out upon us as that water is poured out upon us. That's the reality that makes us truly a part of him, a part of his body, the church. And likewise, for Holy Communion, when we come to that blessed sacrament of the Supper, what do we see? We see bread, we see wine, and that is what the Lord commands us to use. So what is this inward visible, you know, excuse me, inward invisible grace that we're receiving? Truly and verily, as both the Catechism and Jewel will say in his second treatise, the body and blood of Christ, verily and indeed taken and received by the faithful by partaking of Holy Communion. That's a great rundown, Archdeacon. Thank you so much for that. Hopefully, that's helpful for some of our listeners. And, you know, Bishop Jewell, um, he, he's just so prolific. He's so involved with many things. And he also served as the general editor for the second book of homilies and, and possibly authored the homily against idolatry. These, of course, reinforce the theology that undergirds our Anglican formularies. 
So among other things, Jewell had a good deal of influence on Richard Hooker. And so how did Hooker see Jewell? Yeah, so the learned uh, Richard Hooker, who, of course, authors the uh, Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity, uh, several volumes of which I think half of them have been republished in a modernized form uh, by Davenant. And I do commend that to the reader as well, because uh, Hooker is absolutely brilliant, but writes extremely long prose, has a lot to say. And it can be difficult for a modern reader to necessarily flow, excuse me, follow his flow of thought uh, because of the way that he writes. It's not impossible, but I do commend those modern uh, modernizations for people to be introduced. But in terms of, of Bishop Jewell, he actually, you know, taught Richard Hooker. And Hooker so admired his teacher, so admired Bishop Jewell, that he's quoted as to have said that he was the worthiest divine that Christendom hath bred for some hundreds of years, which is incredible considering how much we as Anglicans, you know, have inherited much of our understanding or our doctrine, our way of articulating our beliefs and our faith uh, through the pen of Richard Hooker. He, in turn, points towards, you know, his master, his teacher, Bishop Jewell, and upholds him as being the worthiest divine in Christendom for several hundred years. So it's really interesting to see this thread, especially when it's it's quite ironic that later on in, in the Church of England's history, as you have uh, the evangelical party and then you have uh, the Oxford movement uh, competing to a certain extent, arguing back and forth with each other, you see the Parker Society republishes Jewell's works and as memory serves, the Oxford movement republishes Richard Hooker's work, but it's really master and student. And so I encourage you know anyone who wants to take a deeper dive, go to those sources at Fontes and read them both and see the unity in their thought and see that very much a lot of the arguments that are being made in the 1800s is trying to take these teachers and sometimes they're not really pitting them against each other, but you can see where people pick up a certain emphasis and dive into the emphasis instead of looking at the greater whole, the greater Catholicity of, you know, Reformation England and what we've inherited to this day. And I, I, I can understand why they did that, and I think that we can be tempted to do the same thing. I know that certainly when I was in seminary, there were people who, you know, tried to pit uh, Johannine pastoral theology against Pauline pastoral theology, and and that's really a category fallacy. I mean, this is inspired scripture. And so, and, and we have a continuity and a, a ability to be able to synthesize that uh, through the church and through the church fathers. Uh, but people would typically try to do one or the other to to make some kind of point. Your point is well taken that you know these are two sides of the same coin in classic Anglicanism in helping us understand a fuller expression of it, like you said, teacher and in, uh, and student. And so that's a really nice full view of kind of how the torch is passed, and then we're the inheritors of that. Uh, Arshik and Andrew, as we prepared for this podcast, you mentioned that Bishop Jewell was a staunch defender of the Elizabethan settlement against the Puritans, who wanted to replace the Book of Common Prayer and discard the surplus, that's our white garment that we wear, prayer garment that we wear over the black cassock, uh, in a world where many who think of themselves as Anglican clergy maybe scoff at rubrics and robes and wonder why we can't just enjoy our coffee while swaying to performing arts on stage, 
why would such things be important to someone who is studying classic Anglicanism? Yeah, well, I think it's important for a couple of different reasons. Like, it helps so many who are coming, you know, people call it the Canterbury, you know, trail. So many people who are coming into Anglicanism, they'll bring, you know, their kind of baggage into Anglicanism and either try to make Anglicanism into a wax nose, into something that they left, or since they're fleeing something else, they'll try to make Anglicanism into something that they want. And as a tradition, Anglicanism has its own unique particular uh, tradition and way in which I encourage people, you know, read more, learn more, you know, and quite frankly, you know, live the life of being an Anglican tr Christian uh, through the prayer book by taking up the, the daily offices and be shaped by uh, this discipline, which is very much drawn from reforming uh, Benedictine spirituality uh, through the work of Thomas Cramner. So what does that mean for Bishop Jewell and what his life saw? Well, his life saw that he was battling, you know, to the right, you know, Roman Catholicism, Roman Catholic uh, complaints and arguments and discrediting the Church of England. And then to the left, he's arguing against what people today call Puritan. That's, that's really putting the moniker a little bit too early in terms of his time period, really more of a uh, Zwinglian worldview, a Zwinglian understanding of the faith. Uh, of course, Zwingli being uh, one of the early reformers, a contemporary of Martin Luther, uh, who is oftentimes uh, thrown in with the reformed, but the Reformed lot is can be very different. Uh, Bullinger is not uh, a Zwingli. Uh, Calvin is a no Zwinglian. But you see, yeah, just to Zwinglian just to put it in con ahead. yeah, just to put it in context, my, my uh, church history professor used to say, if you really want to understand Zwingli, just think about church as a white box with a Bible on a stand, and that's all you get. <laughs> <laughs> and that's overstating it, but uh, it is, but it's a good sound by way of kind of seeing the difference there. Yeah, yeah. So please go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And so what you see is like with Bishop Jewel, he has this interesting perspective of he's one of the Marian exiles. Uh, if you know your church history, if you know what happens in England, you have the start of the Reformation in England. It's a very slow start with Henry. Henry's very much essentially a Roman Catholic who just wants to you know, get rid of the authority of the Pope, places himself there, and lets some of the reforms start to, to begin and then kind of backtracks back and forth. Well, his son, King Edward, really gives Cramner and others free hand to push forth with the Reformation, getting an English prayer book in the hands of the people. But then Edward dies uh, as a very young man, and Queen Mary, who's better known popularly as Bloody Mary, uh, takes over, and she's Roman Catholic. So you have so many of the English reformers who flee England, and Bishop Jewell is one of those. He goes across the continent. He is there with uh, some other English speakers and, and worshiping for several years until after Queen Mary dies and then Queen Elizabeth ascends to the throne. And so he has all this hands-on contact with many of the reformers there on the continent, typically those whom we called, quote, the reformed. And when he comes back, you would think that he'd have a perspective of wanting to be like many of those. But his thoughts, his his theology, you know, very much develops to where when he's with Elizabeth, when he's elevated as a bishop, 
that he's defending the Church of England's settlement, the Elizabethan settlement, not only against Roman Catholics, but against those who are in England who rather see the Church of England go more of a very reformed, like continental reformed route. So much so that one of his old friends, Lawrence Humphreys, is refusing to wear a surplice. And he actually, he being Bishop Jewell, goes against his friend, saying like, no, this is what we have established. We have retained the wearing of the surplice. If you have any qualms about vestments that have, you know, Roman Catholic theology tied to it, you shouldn't have qualms about the surplice because there's no such tying of that Roman Catholic theology. And so he very much is having to deal with those who are wanting to dispense uh, with vestments, those who are wanting to see the Book of Common Prayer uh, either um, reformed even further, reformed in quotes in terms of making it not mandatory, making it more uh, fluid, but uh, that is something that he has to uh, contend with and say, no, you know, look to my writings, look to the apology, look to what I'm saying. We have reformed our faith to make sure that we're going back to the church of the first few centuries and making sure that we're upholding the doctrine that we're justified through faith alone. And that through this justification, we were created by God to now walk in new life and to serve him by showing the good works that he called us to do from the very first place. And uh, that's a battle that he has to, to continue. And you can see why with Richard Hooker to bring him back into play. He has to do this even more against those who are the developing and budding Puritan movement within the Church of England. And you can see that he takes a page or two from Bishop Jewell. Now that you have that history of Jewell being you know, his teacher and Richard Hooker looking up to him uh, throughout his life. And so, you know, not to belabor a point too much, but let's bring it into our modern context. And I'll talk about a practice that some Anglican clergy do. And then I'd like to kind of wrap it around the idea of, of how this might be a, a, a bit of a poverty-stricken incarnational and sacramental approach when we talk about physical elements in worship and the deeper meaning that they have. So uh, the practice of just simply taking a stole and putting on top of a clergy shirt um, right before the Eucharist, as opposed to, for example, wearing choir dress, a cassock, and surplice. Now, no one is going to make the argument that the sacraments have no effect because the priest is not wearing, quote-unquote, the right thing. Mm-hmm. No one is going to question that particular priest's piety or their um, their the, the sincerity of their piety. They may question the modality of their piety, but not the sincerity of their piety. But what what is missing there when we aren't participating in these deeper elements of physical elements of worship. And so I'll just I'll set the stage here. So uh, you're right, there is a Benedictine uh, root to our English heritage as far as English Christians are concerned that ultimately became the Anglican communion. So we do wear a black cassock in, in that tradition. Surplus simply means over pelts. And so this was the white prayer garment that we placed over our winter pelts, our, our winter wear, uh, our cassocks, our, and and then put this surplus on top of that. But it's more than that. Can you take us a little bit deeper about why someone might want to expand their their liturgical expression? Yes, and I would say that really the best way to do it is to, is to go through and contemplate the, the vestments controversy, which rises up during the Elizabethan settlement era 
And really, you know, his friend Lawrence is tied to this controversy. There, there's several others who are also objecting to wearing either the surplus or, or other um, investments. And John Hooper is typically the one who is uh, most well known for objecting. He was one of the fellow um, exiles who spent time on the continent and then uh, came back, but then was refusing uh, to wear uh, the vestments. Uh, he thought that when it came to, in the context of, of Hooper, uh, he was not wanting to wear a cope, which was traditional to wear in the cathedral um, in the Church of England. And by canon law, after his lifetime in 1604, when the canons were reformed, uh, cope was uh, expected to be worn at a cathedral in a very uh, high uh, church setting. And he also objected to wearing the surplus, which was required for being worn regardless if you were a country parson or if you were at a cathedral. And this objection creates this huge controversy in the Church of England. But what's fascinating is that you have reformed members on the continent, including Bullinger, who is telling Hooper and others, you need to submit that this is part of being part of the local church that you're at. And that local church being the Church of England. And since it's retained, you know, many practices, including investments, that objecting to the authority, to rebelling to, you know, what is right, decently and orderly is really causing a controversy that is unnecessary. It's really causing you know, people to, to debate about things which are not central to our call, our ministry of preaching the word and delivering the sacraments. And what's fascinating is that when it comes to uh, arguments today, we have people, you know, who are, you know, arguing on why do I need to wear any vestment at all? And it goes back to the way that our Reformation was handled in the Church of England, is that we took away, you know, that which was excessive. We stopped for quite a long time until the past hundred years, really, of wearing uh, even the chasuble and wearing uh, a stole because they were so tied into a Roman Catholic theology. And it was not until there was really a reformation of thinking that it became more acceptable uh, for those people to start wearing chasubles or stoles again. But completely dispensing with, with any sort of vestments uh, really shows a rebellion to the authority, a rebellion to the mindsets and what we have received in Anglicanism, uh, which namely includes, you know, being responsible and obeying the lawful orders uh, of our bishops. And the bishops together have retained those vestments, and not only retain those vestments, but promote their use. And so really when we see, you know, someone going off and doing their, their own thing, and this is more than vestments, it would also include deviating from uh, the Book of Common Prayer by just completely abandoning its form of worship. It's really showing an independence that's inherently not Anglican. You know, there's plenty of other traditions out there where a more uh, quote unquote freestyle form of worship or freestyle what you wear, you know, is acceptable. But you're really bringing into something, bringing something into Anglicanism that has not always been there. You're actually doing something that's contrary to the ethos of what it is to be an Anglican um, clergy member or someone who's worshiping in an Anglican parish. And you illustrate very clearly in that answer that we're talking about sacramental life and we're talking about things that are outward signs of an inward and spiritual grace. 
And submission can be an outward way of showing submission is the wearing of these vestments or the following of rubrics. And it demonstrates both high and low to each individual, uh, whether they are the president of the United States or the premier of France or whether they are a uh, publican or a parson, they are all under the submission of the ecclesiastical authority of the church under Christ. It's, it's, just, it's just such a rich way to be able to experience that sacramental way of life. Thanks for sharing that with us. Archdeacon Andrew, man, it's been a joy to have you join us on the show again, and it's been an enlightening conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Ken and Zach, thank you. It's always a joy to, to be with you. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Classic Anglican Podcast. We look forward to being with you during our next episode. To learn more, join us online at www.anglicanchaplains-etf.org. Until then, stay strong in the Christian faith once received and keep Anglicanism classic.